As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. Today, we're going to be answering your listener questions. I will be doing the hosting as Ryan is on some fantastical Mediterranean holiday involving involving islands of canaries, I believe is the thing or something like that. Joining me today are two gentlemen who I am now going to ask to speculate wildly about Ryan's trip. First up, Graham Ruthven. Graham Ruthven. Hello. Good to, uh, good to talk to you. Thank you for being here. What product or restaurant is Ryan annoyed they don't have where he is? Uh, Starbucks, definitely Starbucks. <laughs> that is correct. His, his least favorite thing about Europe is that there's no Starbucks. They're going to throw him out of Italy if he tweets about <laughs> it anymore. I think only Ryan Bailey could complain about not having a Starbucks right. while living in Rome. Uh, yeah, other, Graham, other things that he's complaining about them not having in Italy, Domino's Pizza yeah. um, and uh, like all American cars. <laughs> uh, this wasn't... This wasn't going to be a points system, but Graham, congratulations. Starbucks is the correct answer, so one point for Graham. (laughs) Over to Joe Lowry. Joe, thank you for being here. Oh, yeah. Uh, The obvious question, is Ryan Bailey wearing running shoes the entire time? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, of course, while listening to, what what did he listen to, the three Lions all throughout the Euros, right? And that that brought England much success. Ryan, I hope you're having a great time, by the way. He's Um, just just crying while running, listening to that song. (laughs) Three lines on the shirt. Just not thinking about that penalty shootout. <laughs> I was kind of hoping that this would uh, be the opportunity for Graham to just fire some shots at Ryan Bailey while Ryan <laughs> Bailey is not here. Uh, but we do have six listener questions to get to. I'm very excited to talk to you uh, both about them. But first, we do have some sad news to talk about. Uh, yesterday, former Rangers and Scotland manager Walter Smith passed away at the age of 73. There's a really nice piece on him uh, by Ewan Murray for The Guardian, who said, When Smith spoke on football, his knowledge, experience, and statesmanlike approach meant others were wise to listen. He had a presence, a wonderfully dry sense of humor, and an obvious old-fashioned decency. You didn't have to support Rangers to be drawn towards Smith, who was inherently a fair man. Graham Ruthven, I know you are not uh, a Rangers supporter necessarily, but I'm assuming that you have uh, some love for Walter Smith. 
Yes, absolutely. And I, I, it would have been remiss of me today not to mention it. As a, as a Scottish football fan, he was a true great of the, the Scottish game. One of the, the best managers that we have ever produced. For me, he's the closest thing we've seen to Sir Alex Ferguson in that Rangers became Walter Smith for over a decade. You know, the club became a, a reflection of him as a character. And for me, you know, born in 91. And so I'm, I'm born right into that period of nine in a row for, for, for Walter Smith as Rangers manager. He was a, a dominant figure in Scottish football. And as I say, he won nine league titles in a row in the nineties. He left and then came back and did it all over again. He took Rangers to the 2008 UEFA Cup final. But to be honest, his significance goes beyond uh, football. In my eyes, he was one of only three men. I've been thinking a lot about this um, since yesterday. He was he was one of only three men in my lifetime who could truly bridge the divide between Celtic and Rangers and all that comes with this that rivalry. And we've spoken a lot about what does come with this that rivalry. And a lot of it is not very nice, but there are three guys who could bridge that divide. Um, he was one of them. The other two being Tommy Burns and I would say Ali McCoist. That two of those men, Burns and Smith, are now gone is is painful. And um, the true mark of Smith is how many people, regardless of their allegiance, what team they support, where they come from, speak so well about him as a person. And yeah, he will be missed in, in Scottish football and in Scotland in general. Graham, a couple questions. Uh, first, a quick follow-up. Why was he able to bridge that divide? Because you're right, it's not one I think of as being easy to cross, easy to have friends on the other side. Uh, so how was he able to do that? I think he he just always had a respect for... I was going to say he had a respect for Celtic, but I'm not sure if it was a respect for Celtic. It was just a respect for other people. And Tommy Burns was one of his one of his close friends, and he was he was one of the people, one of the men that, that carried his coffin when he died a number of years ago. And so images like that are really are really powerful when you have the most successful Rangers manager, arguably of all time, um, carrying the coffin of a of a Celtic legend. Um, and as I say, he just he just had a respect for people. He was also Scotland national team manager for a spell. And for me personally, that's where I actually kind of learned to love him a little bit because he was manager. He brought the good times back to the national team for a period. And and uh, what one of the things he did was he had a coaching team of Tommy Burns and Ali McCoyce was in that coaching team as well. And he, so he kind of drew people from across Scotland together into the national team. And that's, that's what he did. As I said, he, he has a, a, a great respect for people, regardless of stupid things like what team they support or what religion they are or their politics or anything like that. And as you said, manager of the Scotland national team helped them move up, I think, 70 places in the FIFA yeah. World Rankings in the three years in charge and also got the uh, the win over France in Euro 2008 right. qualifying. Graham, were you there for that one? I'm assuming you were there for that one. I was actually there for there that, that match. Um, so that was around the time I was actually a member of the Tartan Army. I, I went to all the home games uh, for that campaign. That was the most fun campaign, and it was kind of split into two because Smith did leave to go back to Rangers halfway through. But then Alex McLeish took over, and um, a lot of the groundwork had been put in by by Walter Smith. So that that was kind of the period that I look back at as, as when I really learned to kind of love Walter Smith. Um, and he was a great leader of, uh, I mean, Corny and everything, but a, gr- a great leader of men because he had respect for those men. Uh, final question. If we were constructing the Scottish football Mount Rushmore, how many faces would need to be on it before we got to Walter Smith? How many, how many people do you think are in there in the conversation for most important, uh, like aspects of Scottish football ever? Yeah, so I mean, we, we, when we went through the, when we did the 101 on, on Scottish football, we mentioned Scottish football managers, and it seems like uh, the majority of those, those faces were, would probably be managers. So you, you are talking about Shankly, 
Steen, um, Ferguson, Busby, and then and then it probably is uh, Walter Smith. After after he is he is in that company. You know, obviously he never won a European trophy. You know, some would say he never succeeded in in England, even though he was Everton manager for periods. But in terms of what he did in Scottish football, there's there's no one really better than him, and that's why it's been such such big news over here in Scotland. It's just dominating the the news agenda, and um, yeah, he he meant a a lot of he meant a lot to a lot of people. So he would be uh, fifth of the five on on the Scottish football Mount Rushmore, and then Alex McLeish is the janitor who cleans up below it. Is that how that works? <laughs> yeah, well, him or uh, Gordon Strachan, we Gordon Strachan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Graham, uh, thank you for talking about Walter Smith. Uh, it was it was it, it's one of those things where like you know about them as an outsider, you can read about the kind of what they meant or what they accomplished, but it's always nice to hear somebody who actually had the connection to them, who cared about them, talk about them. So thank you for doing that. No uh, thank you as well for uh, answering some listener questions. We've got six of them, as I said. Uh, some simpler than others, and I feel like we've got a tough one to start. Uh, Joe, I'm coming to you first for this one, so oh, yeah. buckle up. <laughs> from Kenneth Seiden. Why don't you see 18 to 22-year-olds making big transfers from Africa? Is it that the good ones moved at a younger age and or is there a gap in scouting or talent development? I think there are many different answers to this one, some of them more challenging than others. So, Joe, why don't you get us started? Sure. I want to lay some of the groundwork here first. There are certainly players who are making moves, making transfers from Africa to, say, Europe, right? Their sheer size of the continent, though, guarantees that there are going to be gaps in scouting and gaps in talent development, like Kenneth mentions in his question. So there are players that make those moves, but to his point, to, to Kenneth's point, there aren't a lot of players making big money moves, big money outgoing transfers from their clubs in Africa, from youth clubs or, or pro clubs to places like Europe or, or, or North America, really. Even players that have made it big now and have been high talent players maybe for a long time for years even back to their time in Africa certainly they didn't sell for a whole lot of money I looked up Pat Sandaka as an example um, a Leicester City striker at this point formerly of RB Salzburg he moved from Cafu Celtic FC in Zambia which is his home country to Austria for $275,000 according to transfer market so add in a little buffer buffer there but he moved for less than you know, less than $500,000 and then moved through the Red Bull system and as I said is now playing for Leicester so there aren't players making these big money moves, even really talented players. Patson Dock has been a big player for a long time, long before he's ever been involved in a Premier League setup. So I think Kenneth's question is a brilliant one. And, and at least the, maybe the main reason for me is that African football is still yet to really establish itself as a player in the global transfer market. And that takes time, first of all, but maybe more importantly, it takes investment. And, and once you are making progress, it doesn't even come all at once. We're seeing this now with Major League Soccer, right? Major League Soccer is slowly, slowly becoming more of a player in the global transfer scene. But it's not happening overnight, right? Ricardo Pepe, if he was coming from another country that has a more established outgoing transfer market, we wouldn't be talking about, you know, is he going for $10 million? Is he going for $15 million? We would know that he's going for probably a lot more than that. If he's coming from Brazil, he's likely going for a lot more than if he's coming from Dallas. And if he's coming from Dallas, he's likely going for a lot more than if he's coming from Zambia. And there's a whole host of reasons behind that. I think, number one, is money, is infrastructure, and the lack, the relative lack of professional infrastructure and, and, and structured youth soccer infrastructure in a lot of different countries in Africa. They don't have many highly rated professional leagues there, which makes it hard to have a trickle down and hard to have a lot of, of 
interest from outside of the continent. And so there's a whole host, as you're mentioning, Taylor, of reasons behind this. But I think money and, and a lack of establishment on the global, global transfer scene are, are chief among those reasons. Yeah, Simon Cooper and Stefan uh, Shemansky came to the same conclusion in their book, uh, Footballnomics, that you're talking about, Joe. To win at sports, you need to find, develop, and nurture talent. Uh, doing that requires money, know-how, and some kind of administrative infrastructure. Few African countries have any. That's an excerpt from their book. I would say, uh, to make it very serious very quickly, the same things we're talking about when it comes to Africa and football relate to a lot of things when, yeah. it, when, we, when we talk about Africa. There's the history of colonialism, the intentionality of keeping the countries and the people of Africa in a sort of disadvantaged state for the benefit of, of others. And I would say that is a big reason why... You don't have some of that infrastructure and you don't have some of the money behind the game for the historical reasons and then those ongoing reasons as well. And I think there's probably an element of uncertainty about Africa as a result, especially from those larger uh, footballing clubs who I think probably go the more established pipelines where they can. And it's once those pipelines are established, then you can kind of keep mining them, keep going back to them. But I think with African football, Joe, there is a level of disconnect that I think hasn't been bridged. Uh, so that's that's one part of it for sure. Uh, Graham, over to you to uh, to make of this question what you will. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think that the points that Joe make there are, are absolutely spot on. And I, I, to take it one step further, this is maybe why um, some listeners might have heard of the, the proposal to create a, an African Super League. I know the term Super League is now uh, tainted, given what given what happened uh, earlier this year. But actually, when you read into it, there are some legitimate reasons why a Super League might actually work for, for African football. Um, obviously, we're talking about African football as a monolith here and there are some countries yep. that maybe you know South Africa for example does have an established league has big clubs you know does have that infrastructure and then there are other countries in this giant continent um, so I'm, I am reluctant to talk about them all in, in, in one go but if we're looking at the confederation of, of African football then yeah I think it's it's fair to say that having um, some infrastructure at the elite level in the form of a super league might actually help establish some of those those uh, footballing trade routes if we're looking at the UK Specifically, if we're talking about um, the question mentions big transfers, so you know the Premier League is the 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 guiltiest of big transfers, shall we say? A big obstacle is um, the work permit situation. Looking at African football, so obviously there's been some change in this since the UK left the the EU, but it used to be the cl- the case that British clubs were free to sign players from around Europe. Um, as they pleased without having to think about work permits because of the, the EU. Um, that has now changed, but the situation remains the same for non-EU players, which of course African players are, that you would need a work permit to make the move to a British club. And one of the stipulations of receiving a work permit concerns the number of international matches. Now, they can be senior international matches or youth international matches um, that that player has played. So if African national teams are made up of players playing in in Europe which tends to be the case I'm not saying they're they entirely consist of those players then it then it might be the case that that young african players who are playing for domestic clubs aren't getting those international call-ups and then it's tougher for them to obtain those work permits so that was one of the reasons that 
I came up with for why looking at that that route between Africa and the Premier League and British football that that's one of the reasons it is it is very difficult for them and if you look at other countries you know Italy for example I was reading up doesn't have so many barriers to signing players from Africa and that's why maybe you do get more African players making the 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 move to to Italy and Serie A so there are some bureaucratic reasons as well um, explaining why it's quite difficult for players in Africa to make that move to some of the bigger European leagues. I hadn't really thought about the work permit aspect. That That is a great point, Graham. Uh, and then you do have organizations like, say, Right to Dream in Ghana that, that are sort of establishing academies that are facilitating player movement abroad. And so there are some organizations or many organizations that are doing good work. There are also plenty that are not. And there are plenty of immoral uh, industries yes. functioning around human trafficking when it comes to sport. I know in, in when we lived in Istanbul that there were lots of like African uh, immigrants or refugees or basically people who were brought over on the promise of you're going to be a professional footballer. And then they arrived and there was nothing there. And so now they're selling watches and playing like pickup soccer, amateur soccer. Uh, there was the Istanbul Africa Cup of Nations when we lived there because you had so many different immigrant populations that you would have Ivory Coast playing Ghana and Senegal playing Burkina Faso. And you'd like, because there are people who are promised, um, possibilities in Europe. And then when they arrive, those possibilities are not there. So there's an entire industry built around scouting and bringing players over, but not necessarily facilitating further development or actually helping them find yeah. clubs. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, Taylor, because in my research, I'm, I actually find myself quite ashamed that we yeah. don't that we don't know more about that. I was reading that every year 6,000 young Africans um, attempt to migrate to Europe to play soccer and that the, the lack of, kind of migration policy and processes puts them at risk of, of uh, dodgy agents and chancers who are, as you mentioned, they're essentially human traffickers. And the fact that I didn't really know all that much about that is, uh, yeah, pretty ashamed of myself for that, to be honest. I feel like that needs to be a bigger story. The fact that that's been done in the name of soccer um, doesn't make me feel very good. Yeah, I was talking to my dad. I think he was he was like he had just learned about Calciopoli and was sort of like, I thought soccer was sacrosanct. I thought these things never happened. And I laughed and I laughed because, no, <laughs> so many things get sort of swept under the rug in favor of the World Cup every two years or whatever it might be. So, no, I, th- I think I, I appreciate that you you take that so seriously, Graham. But it is one of those things that's kind of hard to find the balance with because we want we we want Africa to be better, and I would like their World Cup qualifying process to be slightly more forgiving, and maybe that means more spots uh, facilitates that. But I think the more we talk about it, the more we learn, and uh, maybe we can just like focus on covering the Af- Africa Cup of Nations with more uh, sincerity as it comes around. We've done that in the past. Maybe we can uh, do that again. Yeah, I won't commit I either of you to doing that, but uh, <laughs> if you'd like to, you can. Hey, I'm love, here for it. I love Afcon. I think it's I think it's one of the best international tournaments around. It's it's got a unique charm to it, which um, in the kind of sanitized Euros World Cup, they kind of all kind of look the same and feel the same. And yeah, I love Africa Africa Cup nations. I'm up for that. There we go. All right, and and I think on a slightly more positive note, I think the more footballers that like make the money that have the fame in return to establish their own academies, uh, like maybe some of those are licenses to print money, but I think a lot of those are stability that doesn't exist elsewhere in, in the countries we might be talking about. You're right to not want to talk about Africa as a monolith, but I think of like what Michael Essien has done. I think Drogba has an academy. I, there's 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 several other ones because I know there's a couple in every coast that are doing good things, and I think the more 
more you have that sort of reinvestment, the more stability there is and the more sort of connections there are to clubs in Europe and elsewhere that maybe are a bit more stable, a bit safer. So hopefully uh, things improve, but we'll keep an eye on that. We'll continue to discuss it. We can promise that much. We can continue to answer a few questions from our listeners. But first, let's take a moment to hear from today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, we're back. Uh, Joe, I think I threw to you last time, so I will throw to you again, because uh, (laughs) I'm guessing Graham has some thoughts on this one. But this one from Michael Hastings Black, other than Jesse Marsh, who do you think could be a good future head coach of the U.S. men's national team? Graham, I'm sure that you have some thought out answers. But since Joe and I spend way too many hours talking about the U.S. men's (laughs) national team, I'm guessing Joe has a few up front. I do weirdly. Well, maybe not so weirdly. I actually I think Graham might be better served to answer this question than I am (laughs) just because we talk so much about who's going to be the next coach of the national team. And I feel like the same names get brought up over and over again and for understandable reasons. Right. National team coaches tend to be the same nationality as a team they're coaching. Greg Berhalter, for example, uh, you know, coaches Bruce Arena before him, Dave Sarikin in between those two guys as an interim, Bob Bradley. I mean, you're, I mean, Jurgen Klinsmann as an obvious outlier, but that doesn't happen. Also lived in California, though, and right. kind of identified as American German. <laughs> yeah. So most of the time you look around international soccer, the, the coach is the same nationality as the players out there on the field under him or her. So this is a, this is a tough question to answer from Michael because – there aren't a lot of other American coaches that I think make sense as viable national team options right now. And that could change by the time that the job opens up to one of them, right? Peter Vermees is an option. Greg Vanny is an option. Robin Frazier, Jim Curtin, Pellegrino Matarazzo. It is pretty slim pickings, though. I don't know that any of those options are highly probable anytime soon. And so the reason why I think Graham is probably better suited to answer this is at a certain point, you have to look outside the American coaching pool because it's it's lacking in a lot of senses. And so some names outside of that pool that I did come up with, though, before I turn it over, Taylor, to you or to Graham, Casper Hillmond, who I think I've talked about briefly on this show before when I did a listener questions episode with Adam Snavely, Danish national team coach, right? Likely a lot of listeners will remember him from the Euros. Uh, he's coached at club level in Germany and Denmark as well. Got that, that Denmark team at the Euros all the way to the semifinals in Euro 2020 slash 2021. Uh, and, and right now, in World Cup qualifying, guys, his team is a perfect 24 points from eight games. 27 goals allowed, zero <laughs> goals. 27 goals for, excuse me, zero goals allowed. They're already qualified for the World Cup, and Graham yeah, they're knows in our group. very well. They have yeah, been exactly. Exceptional. They're phenomenal. <laughs> and we play, right? we play them next month. I'm not looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah, might want to chalk that one up as a loss, Graham. Who knows? Um, yeah. But th- this team is phenomenal under Casper Holman. They play some good soccer. They have some similar principles to what Greg Berhalter has been trying to execute with the U.S. They just 
execute it better in a lot of ways. I don't know at this point that Casper Hillman would even be a get, a possible get for the U.S. men's national team. But if they could, I think he would be a phenomenal option. I've got a couple more, but I feel like I've been talking for a long time. Graham, do you want to dish some some names out there for us? Yeah, so looking at the the kind of domestic names, you've kind of mentioned a lot of them. I had I had this, you know, ready-made joke to go that you'd be looking at MLS, you probably want to to take the most successful coach who, who also just happens to be the best coach in the league <laughs> right now. So Bruce Arena, uh, but yeah. I feel like it's, it's been passed over to me to look at some of the, the outside <laughs> names. So I'm going to... I'm going to put one name forward, right? And before you all jump on me, please uh, let me get my reasoning across first. I've just realized that the question says a good future head coach of the USMNT. I'm not sure if he'd be good, but I could certainly see a scenario where Jose Mourinho is the US men's national team manager at some point in the future. Now, this might sound like pie in the sky stuff, I understand, but... Mourinho has spoken glowingly about US soccer and American soccer in general, in general in the past. Mourinho's a cynic, right? So he talks up teams and jobs that he would like in the future. See, see some of his comments recently about uh, Bobby Robson and Newcastle United. That is with the purpose of lining that job, job up. So if he's talking glowingly about American soccer, it's either with uh, a job in MLS in mind or potentially the national team job. And <laughs> um, there's also kind of a growing sense that Mourinho Marino's days in the club game might be numbered, I think. You know, where does he go after Roma um, other than Newcastle United? Um, so uh, Mourinho as a manager of a host, of a host, na- of the host nation for the 2026 World Cup when all, all eyes will be on the US and therefore all eyes will be on him. I could see that appealing to Jose Mourinho, whether he'd be a good manager of the, the US national team. I'm not so sure, but that's a name I could see taking over at some point that would be so entertaining Graham so bad so I mean I don't know maybe it would turn out fine I I, I, I can't tell but that would be incredibly entertaining good gracious I think Graham <laughs> did a really nice job of setting that up because when he talked about MLS coaches who might be unpopular like I, I, I think you weren't talking about MLS coaches but I assume that's where you're going and for a minute I thought you were going to suggest Phil Neville and we were going to fight <laughs> uh, so Mourinho uh, better by comparison one thing for, for folks who are newer to it why do you think Graham international football is seen as like semi-retirement for managers like why would it be I don't know if there's anywhere else for Mourinho to go at club level so maybe international uh, is where he goes next um, I mean, the answer to that is why is it seen, you know, if your question is why is it seen as semi-retirement, it's because you get a lot more time yep. off. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gordon Strachan, when he took the Scotland national team job, was very open about the fact that he wanted to spend a bit more time in the golf course. And like genuinely, that was a reason he said, like, I, I don't have the stamina for the club game at the moment, so I'm going to go into international football. And it feels like Mourinho might benefit from having a little bit more time to himself. You know, it seems like he's been in the washing machine of European soccer for the last, what, 20 years without much of a break. And it seems to have fried his mind a little bit. So after Roma, and I think, you know, depending on the timing, Newcastle potentially could be interested in him. But after, after those jobs, I don't, how, how low is Mourinho going to, is how, how willing is he to go to a lower level than those clubs? And so the US as a host, as I say, as I say, host nation of the 2026 World Cup as a, a giant country, you know, where there's 300 million people, you know, obviously not all of them soccer fans, but still a, a, a country and a team that a lot of eyes will be on. Like, I think that would appeal to him. And I, and I think there are, there's reason to believe it's a job that could potentially suit him when he will still have that aura. He'll still be Jose Mourinho. 
And like that counts for a lot in international football where you don't have that time on the training field with the players. And so you do kind of have to manage through Aura. And he, he's got that. And if he wants to get more time on the golf course, that would be a way to go. Normally, the only way to do that while still being in football is to play for Real Madrid. But you could go international <laughs> management route as well. Joe, uh, the idea of maybe international managers not having as much time, they have more time off. They're kind of just watching their players going to games, but not involved in the coaching as much. A, a controversial statement I am about to make, uh, to be very pert happily. I am not so convinced Jesse Marsh is a logical choice for the U.S. national team. Obviously, Leipzig having the profile they do, and I think the way he is trying to move in his career, for the reasons we've already talked about, I'm not sure he wants to go into international management short of things at Leipzig not working out. But I also think of him as being a system manager. He wants to play this high-intensity, high-pressing style that, as we've seen with Greg Berhalter, can be difficult to translate to national teams where you don't have as much time to train and sort of work through the processes. So that would be my hesitation about Jesse Marsh. I'm not sure he's so plug-and-play as people want him to be. Where are you on that one, Joe? I think your concerns, or, or at least your observation about Jesse Marsh's career trajectory, are are fair. And I've often thought the same thing. I don't know Jesse Marsh. I don't know where his mind is about taking that job. I believe he's expressed interest in it in the past. And so then the question is timing. From a tactical standpoint, Taylor, I think I'm not sure we can make a direct comparison between Greg Berhalter's principles and the challenges that he's had <laughs> instilling them yeah. and Jesse Marsh's principles because they're different, right? They approach soccer very differently. Greg Berhalter has slowly moved towards the Jesse Marsh end of the spectrum in that the U.S. is now high-pressing, and they didn't do that for the first full calendar year in 2019. They've actually started to play more aggressively in certain games instead of being fully committed to playing out of the back. And so we have seen some changes but I believe that pressing principles and, and more defensive-minded... Jesse Marsh would say he presses to score goals, and so it's not really a defensive-minded tactic. But in, in a certain way, it is. It's easier to coach and instill those things with, with principles that are against the ball when you're defending than it is to instill principles when you have the ball. And so I don't know that I'm as concerned about Jesse Marsh's ability to get his team, get the U.S. national team someday, ready to play and ready to play his way. I don't know that I'm as concerned about that, Taylor, but the timing certainly, I think, is an interesting point and could present some problems for the U.S. As we've talked about, there aren't a ton of highly logical options here. So some options, though, maybe not highly logical, but the two that came to mind for me, Joe, you are far more uh, versed in Major League Soccer. So I will I will say these names, then you can tell me how wrong I am. The two that I thought of were Brian Schmetzer and Jim Curtin. Brian Schmetzer, mm. because he seems like a good locker room manager from what I have observed. Players seem to like him. He doesn't uh, overcomplicate. And he adapts based on what's available. So he seems pretty pragmatic, which is the thing I think you definitely need when it comes to the international game. Jim Curtin brings the youth through. It doesn't seem to have the hesitations about playing those young players and giving them the opportunities to impress. He has clear ideas how he wants to play. He's not overly concerned with dogma. And again, popular in the locker room, charismatic in front of cameras, or seems to be. So both, I think, could be have a lot of strengths in their columns. Uh, Joe, agree or disagree with those names? I agree. I think there, there are possibilities. I didn't mention Brian Schmetzer, honestly, because I kind of forgot. His Sounders team has been phenomenal for the last handful of years now. They are a dynasty in Major League Soccer. Brian Schmetzer, though, I, I guess I have one main knock on both of these coaches. With Brian Schmetzer, it seems like he can conduct a locker room. He seems like a good guy, just like a good dude, and I think that would attract a lot of people to him. He He doesn't really have much desire from what I've seen to go in depth on the tactical side. And maybe that's, maybe that's fine. Maybe that doesn't matter at the international level. Maybe it doesn't matter at a club level. He certainly had enough success in that way. That does give me 
a, a little pause for him, though. And, and same with Jim Curtin. He has more tactical desire and more desire to give his team specific instructions from what I've observed. But with the union, they're attacking spacing and, and their tactics when they have the ball. Yes, they play very direct, but when they do settle into possession, they have very little well-defined spacing in the attack. And that concerns me because it's not just a one-off thing. We've seen that in the past as well, and it has limited their ability to be dangerous with the ball. They don't create many chances. Defensively, they're strong, especially this year. But they aren't magical on the ball. And so I do have, not that magical should be the, the floor here that we're expecting coaches to pass, but I do have little questions about both of those guys. But Taylor, I don't think those are, are bad names at all, really. Is, is there anyone um, internally that could do that job? So when I when I was covering the USMNT, and I've kind of fallen off that that beat quite a bit, but it was always Tab Ramos that was that was put forward as as a potential future head coach of of the senior team. Obviously, he was what was he under twenty three? Under twenty. He was yeah, a, yeah he, under twenty. Who is who's who's under twenty three at the moment? Is it Jason Christ? Yeah, is, yeah, yeah. Graham, that's a good question. Under twenty three, I believe, is still Jason Christ, and uh, I don't think anyone left in the soccer house would have a job after appointing Jason Christ. Hard the men's hard pass. <laughs> And, and the, the problem is, Graham, that's a good idea. The problem is there's I don't I'm not sure if there is a U twenty coach right now. It was Anthony Hudson for a while, and now he's an assistant under Greg Baralther. He he certainly fell upward in that regard. Never coached a single game with the U twenty national team. And I don't know if he is the coach for that squad right now. U seventeen's just hired a coach, the former a former member of the U fifteen coaching staff, I believe. Uh, but it's slim pickings right now, and, and there okay. hasn't been a lot of infrastructure or investment happening in the youth programs for the men's side and, and on the women's side in the last year or two. Okay, I was just wondering if there was a, a Southgate waiting yeah. in the wings, to, yeah. ready to take over from Big well, Sam, drinking his pint of wine. Uh, well, where where it could go, I, I have this thought, aside from the pint of wine, is a former player getting their coaching badges. And there was a story in July 2021, uh, Zardes, Roldan, and Zimmerman were all getting their B licenses. So I think there are opportunities in the future that like players that are currently playing or have just retired, like DeMarcus Beasley, uh, could potentially be in that conversation. But it occurred to me then that a lot of that depends on how things go. That if these players are all, like Roldan, I think at national team level, Zardes very much the same, connected to Greg Burr. And if things go off the rails or it doesn't work out, I think there is less desire to bring in somebody who has immediate connections to Greg Berhalter because that's seen as like appointing his successor. Whereas if things go well, maybe there is a little more openness to certain players that have played under him. But I guess uh, time will have to tell on that one. But I, be- I think basically... This kind of also informs the debate about uh, for people who want Greg Berhalter sacked. I think I'm not in that group. I know there are plenty of people out there who are, but I think, number one, uh, things are fine. But number two, I don't know who the immediate successor would be or anybody who's going to take that over and have more success than we're having right now. So uh, I think some good answers from you both. But Graham, for our next question, I- I'm-, I'm coming to you first. This one from Craig Muir. Luka Modric was once voted Real Madrid's worst signing of the season when he first moved. Can you guys think of any other players that managed to smash the fans' first impression of them to become cult heroes? David De Gea, maybe says Craig. Yeah, so I've got a, a few names that, that spring to mind. Some of them um, are recency bias selections, so I've tried to stay away from them. So, But the first one um, is definitely a recent recency bias selection. So Fabinho was one name that sprung to mind. So 
while he wasn't quite written off, he wasn't voted as Liverpool's worst signing uh, of the season. He barely played at all for the first couple of months at Liverpool. And I remember writing a piece looking at whether Klopp had, had made a mistake by signing a player he didn't seem to be that keen on at the time. And then now look at him as he is now. He's central to the whole operation. He's one of the most important players and has been for a number of seasons. Um, another couple that came to mind, Taylor, I feel like maybe I might be stealing your thunder here, but Patrice Evra and Nemanja Vidic, oh, yeah. who had a infamously yeah. bad debut in a Manchester derby after signing in a January transfer window. That might have been 2005 or some, around, around about that time yeah. anyway, yeah. And everyone in particular struggled in his first six months at My United. And then along with Vidic, they went on to become genuine club legends That's and won true. everything. Um, That's another a really one good that- point, man. Because they're, they're often like uh, pointed to as players where you can find value and have success in the January window because that's when they were brought in. But Graham, to your point, what is often overlooked in that one is that for the first six months, they were both very, very, very poor or at least not as good as they became for Manchester United. Yeah, absolutely. I remember Evra struggling. So at that time, Gabriel Heinze was the, was the other left back, I think, yeah. about you said. And uh, yeah. Heinze was, was, was kind of taking his, his place in the team, uh, in that first six months. But obviously they, they flourished after that, that initial period. Another player that I'm going to mention is Karim Benzema, who used to get whistled by the home fans inside the Bernabeu for the first three, uh, first few years at Real Madrid. And even up, up until Ronaldo left, just what was that, three and a half years ago, there were loads who thought Benzema should be contributing more with, with some reason, I, I should say. You know, his numbers weren't particularly good. And when Real Madrid sold, first of all, it was when they sold Gonzalo Higain, which I think was in 2013. And then when they sold Alvaro Morata, the first time they sold him, <laughs> um, some argued that it should have been Benzema that was the one who, that, that got pushed out the door. And obviously now Benzema is, uh, seen as one of the front runners for the Ballon d'Or. He seems to be getting better and better. And he's the the post-Ronaldo figurehead for that team. The last one I'm going to mention, I'll do this very quickly because I feel like I've been talking for a long time. The last one I mention is Henrik Larsson. So his Celtic debut was infamously terrible. He misplaced a pass from which Hibs... So he came off the bench with about 15 minutes to go. He then misplaces a pass from which uh, Hibs scored a winner from on his debut his next game was his European debut and he scored an own goal in that game. Uh, so not the best of starts for a player who would go on to become arguably the, the best player in Celtics. Um, well, I wouldn't even say arguably, the best player in, in Celtics recent history, their modern history. He is a, a club legend. But he got off to a pretty poor start. <laughs> I mean, I can't believe Henrik Larson started poorly and I can't think of him as anything but positive. But Graham, those are some solid nominations. I've got a few, but uh, Joe, first, coming to you. I've got a couple. I struggled a little bit with this question, and so I welcome you guys to completely overrule my picks here. But the first one I have is Robert Lewandowski, not at Bayern Munich, but at Borussia Dortmund. He wasn't a starter at Dortmund when he first moved there from Poland. Members of the media didn't like the signing from Dortmund, and at least some fans certainly wanted more out of Robert Lewandowski. That was in 2010, 2011. And before that, even in Poland, he'd had some some issues in his career trajectory. He wasn't always on an upward march. He'd also played a few different spots other than striker. And so things weren't always as clear with Robert Lewandowski. And then after that 2010-2011 season, he became an every-game starter in 11-12. Sure. And the rest is history at that point. Joe, do you know the story of Lewandowski almost going to Blackburn Rovers? Yeah, yes. 
Sam Allardyce almost had him, Grim. And what was it? Uh, a volcano? Some sort yeah, of natural so the, disaster, the Icelandic, right? the Icelandic volcano eruption, oh, yeah. which kind of grounded flights for about two weeks in Europe, uh, stopped him from traveling to complete that deal. Incredible. And the rest is history. <laughs> That's a sliding doors moment. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's so good. I was reading about that yesterday, Grim, and it is a phenomenal story. The only other player I've got for this question is Gareth Bale. Signed yep. for Tottenham from Southampton. It took him a couple of years to become a regular player for them. There were some issues. He, it took him a long time to actually win a Premier League game, to participate on the field in a Premier League it was game. A curse. Yeah, discussions of a curse. Certainly, some fans were not all that pleased with Gareth Bale. And then he blossomed and became a really phenomenal left sided player. A really player good for golfer. Them. Yeah, really great golfer with Real Madrid. And, and again, the rest is history, guys. Uh, yeah, he did not win a game when he, I had Gareth Bale as well. He did not win a game for them for his first 24 games. Uh, then he only won a game where he came on as a substitute. It took him two and a half years to win a game in which he started. So yeah, there was, uh, there was some speculation about would he ever come good? Would he work out? And I think that was when he was playing more as a fullback and then gets moved forward. And, uh, there we are. Things go the way they go. Uh, one other name I had, uh, was Xavi, who is not one that I, I, I oh. thought of. Immediately, but uh, reading about what he had to say about his start, uh, basically that he was a homegrown who looked out of place amongst Barcelona's stars, which is very odd because the player who he was most often compared to and criticized for not being is Pep Guardiola, who I think backed Xavi, but was also an Academy product. So you would think there would have been some love there. Uh, but in a 2015 interview, Xavi said, I didn't get recognition until 2008 when I'd, when I'd been in the team for 10 years. If I leaf through the papers from years gone by, it makes me laugh. They said I was obsolete, that Edgar Davids made me look good, that the, I only move the ball from side to side. They called me the windscreen wiper. He eventually gets the appreciation, obviously, and is now beloved. But I guess for a while, Barca fans unimpressed by the windscreen wiper. Graham, you like that one? Yeah, yeah. And the sad thing is, as good as Xavi uh, was, that kind of did, did explain his role in that team a little bit. Hey, you got to move it quickly, and you got to be good. And that's Xavi uh, as a wind as a windscreen wiper. He can do like you know the extra fast setting when it's pouring rain and you want yeah. to go one level faster. That's Xavi. He brings you that level of windscreen wiper. Uh, and I I had honestly sort of misremembered David de Gea as long as we're still on this topic. Uh, to Craig's, I'm pronouncing it with the Scottish pronunciation now. Craig instead of Craig. Uh, to his point. The right way. Yeah, exactly. Because I remembered it being that he came in and was very, people were very excited about him. Then he had the sort of high profile mistakes and people were concerned. And then he comes good and everybody's into it. Going back and reading more, I had forgotten how bad it had gotten that he was He got dropped. Yeah, he got dropped and there was, and there was like teams were just cranking shots from 30 yards out because he was seen as, it was such a liability for him to deal with long shots and reading about everything they had to do. And he hated going to the gym and they had to help him learn how to do that. He wanted to sleep at random hours and random parts of the day. And they basically just had to teach him to be a professional footballer and help him come along. But along the way, there was much speculation because he's coming on the heels of uh, Edwin Vandersar, who wins the Champions League and is this beloved figure for Manchester United, albeit not there for very long. But I think that he comes... In when he does and then has that downturn in form. I can't, is, uh, Anders Lindegaard, I think, was the, the one yep. who was rivaling him. And that was like, oh, maybe they should have gone for that guy and start him instead. I remember being into Anders and then switching back to the llama that is David De Gea very quickly. <laughs> yeah, Lindegaard was decent for, for a little while. Mm-hmm. I, I remember there was a Manchester derby that Lindegaard started in that Mine actually won. Um, 
Yeah, it yep. was it was touch and go for De Gea for uh, De Gea for a while. He, it wasn't guaranteed that he was a bit of a Van de Beek, to be honest. Yeah, there's a lot of people doubting that he would ever come good. People criticizing his physicality was the thing that got kind of that that was the thing that got talked about a lot. And then he hit the gym, and uh, now he's an even more muscular llama. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so we'll see what happens with Danny Van de Beek. Maybe he too will become a muscular llama. But I think Luka Modric has shown us: don't write people off, especially if they haven't had a preseason, because they will end yeah. up being incredibly good for an incredibly long period of time. Three more questions to go. First, one more break to hear from today's sponsors. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. We are back. Joe, coming to you for this one. I have changed the order unbeknownst to my, uh, my two co-hosts. Joe, from Zach uh, K. De La Valle. I hope I have not butchered that one. Key de la Valle, probably. Uh, what happened to Reggie Cannon, Joe? Oh, boy. Um, there is a lot to get to here. I'm going to, again, is, lay some of the... Fact, f- go ahead. Yeah, what, what, do you want me to lay the groundwork and then yeah, you can fine. take it sure. from there? Yeah, I, I feel bad throwing to you for all of that. Basically, <laughs> okay. Reggie Cannon moves to Boavista from FC Dallas with an eye towards a future move that has since stalled. He played 31 games for Boavista last season, starting 30. Has not featured much this season. He got his first minutes yesterday in a one-to-one draw with Belenenses. But that is not how we thought this would go. We thought he would have moved, or we thought he would at least be starting almost every single game. So, Joe, with that groundwork now laid, what's the situation as best you understand? 
Uh, the situation is that Boa Vista are maybe not the best well-run, the most well-run club so right now in Portugal. The the, the big <laughs> thing that you mentioned Shambles, there. Shambles, Joe. Shambles is the word. <laughs> okay. yeah. The big thing that you mentioned there, Taylor, that I want to highlight is there's no future move happening right now for Reggie Cannon, or at least there wasn't a move at the summer deadline day, which is when a lot of us thought, and I think Reggie Cannon thought, that he was going to move from Boavista likely to Lille, at least initially, right? So Boavista and Lille, when Reggie Cannon moved from FC Dallas to Portugal for about $2 million, which is Boavista's record transfer fee, or at least it certainly was at the time, when Cannon made that move to Portugal, the expectation was, or the option for him was, to move to Lille. They had the same owner, uh, Gerard Lopez. They owned He owned both clubs, Lille in France and Boavista in Portugal, had majority shares in both of those companies. And so the expectation was that Cannon would go play for Boavista for a season, do well there, and then move on to Lille where he could really prove himself at a higher level in Ligue 1. But due to some financial troubles and, and decision-making from Gerard Lopez, Lopez sold Lille, which created some challenging financial and personnel situations for Boavista. And so Cannon's move, the, the move we all thought he was going to make, then wasn't happening. And so Cannon still was looking for a move over the summer. And again, I believe he was supposed to get one. I think that was the plan all along going to Boavista. Gerard Lopez then bought Bordeaux in Liga. So he sold Leo and bought Bordeaux in the same league. And so rumors started up that he could head over there. Reggie Cannon could head to Bordeaux. Obviously, that hasn't happened. Bundesliga clubs were interested. Clubs in Turkey, France, England, all interested. Boavista w- was at least negotiating with Fulham. Uh, and Cannon was close to a move there. That didn't happen. Bovista wanted more money than anyone was willing to give for Cannon, which is fine to an extent, but Cannon's also on a pretty hefty contract there. And so for a club in financial ruin at the moment, getting rid of those wages and getting some sort of transfer fee wouldn't have been a bad thing. All of those things combined with the fact that apparently he's recently recovering from an ankle injury. He's just recently recovered from an ankle injury, I should say. That's why he hasn't been playing much this season. Coming back from the Gold Cup late factored in as well. Then you have the transfer stuff. And Cannon's only had one appearance in the league and one appearance in the Cup so far. And they've all come in the last two weeks, Taylor. And as I understand it, Bovista at risk of penalties uh, for failing to pay fees, for uh, not meeting scheduled payment expectations on transfers. So I, I also think there's an idea that maybe they're holding out for more money because they need that money to finance some of that debt. But since they're not paying those transfer fees, I think some clubs are hesitant to get involved with them. Uh, and then there were the story, I think Paul Tenorio uh, wrote a story for The Athletic about Reggie Cannon's car being stopped after a game by Ultras and him having to get out and kind of calm them down and talk to them a little bit. And they were, in the end, I think very nice to him. Him, but that was also sort of an eye-opening moment about how intense the fandom can be in Europe. And not that that's really a negative thing for him. It's just, I think, another sign of the sort of tumultuous time he has had in Portugal. At national team level, uh, reading some comments from Berhalter, it seems like basically he just wants him to be more consistent. That like they've seen the highs of Reggie Cannon's performance for club and country. They've He feels like they've also seen some of the lows. And now the idea is to iron it out so you get a more balanced, consistent performance from him. And I'm guessing... That's a way of saying he needs to play regularly at club level. So maybe that move in January, if it happens, uh, could be the way he gets back into the squad with more regularity. Berhalter also talked about him needing to improve his 1v1 defending and knowing what Reggie Cannon brings to the attack. Weird that he didn't say that about any of the other fullbacks who maybe it also applies to. But uh, that would be my explanation. Uh, Graham, I don't expect you to have like a ton of insight into the situation with Boavista or the U.S. national team. But I would ask, how much have you seen of Reggie Cannon? How how familiar are you with him? 
So I'm actually more familiar with Reggie Cannon from his his time in mm-hmm. in MLS. Obviously, when he was at FC Dallas, um, I do watch quite a bit of of MLS. Not on uh, Joe Lowry levels, I must say, but um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I do observe that league. And and obviously, the the news story when he um, what was the story again? He he hit back at players that that yeah. booed the the national anthem. Uh, sorry, the players kneeling during the the national anthem, obviously in solidarity of Black Lives Matter. Black, Black Lives Matter. I remember that whole story, but actually, I didn't know really anything about the whole Bovisa story um, that Joe just just told there. So I found that all very interesting. It seems like a bit of a mess and not really the situation you would want one of your nah. most promising oh. young players to be in the middle of. It's, <laughs> it's a huge mess. And I, more than anything, I just feel for Reggie Cannon in this situation, right? Like the person from all accounts that I've heard and everything that we've seen from a content standpoint, he seems like a really nice, funny, intelligent, like kind person. And this is a horrible situation to be in. He was expecting to move in to continue his career. We've talked a lot about career trajectories on this show, but Reggie Cannon was expecting to continue to climb and, and to have chances to play. And for a, a lot of the reasons, and I'm sure there's even more reasons that we haven't mentioned, but for all the ones that we have, it's been very challenging for that to actually happen and for, for Cannon to actually be in a stable environment that's going to help him improve. And it's affecting his ability to play with the national team. It's affecting his ability to continue climbing at club level. It's It's a really sucky, crappy situation, and I just feel for Reggie Cannon here, guys. Uh, reading between the lines a bit and talking to a few people who know more than I, I also get the impression that, f- like, for lack of a better way of putting it, Reggie Cannon, though very affable, very nice, a very good leader in the team, also maybe not one to suffer fools. And I think you could see that when he talked about his experiences with racism in the United States. As Graham said, when he expressed his anger at those who were in opposition to the Black Lives Matter movement, I think, again, not afraid to kind of call people out, uh, be pretty direct in his assessment when it's required. And I'm assuming that that has been the case here as well, that he has not held back in his frustration about the situation, nor would I say he should if his former club isn't being paid and he doesn't feel like he's being valued or appreciated or incorporated into the club the way he feels he should be. I think maybe there's also an element of he doesn't just sort of put his head down and do what's asked of him. I think he'll say like, no, I think I need to be valued a little bit more. And I mean that in the best possible way. I kind of like a player who will stand up for themselves. So I hope we see more of Reggie Cannon. I also hope we have answered Zach's question about what has happened to him. Uh, Graham, we'll go to you for the next one, which I will say up front I'm going to try to make as not sad as possible. But this one from Matt Koss. Are there any famous cases of a player being drunk or high during a match? I will say this. Most of the ones that I came across, most of uh, the stories that I heard in my reading are sad because they tend to be about alcoholism and addiction and how players would have to drink or felt like they had to drink before games so they could handle the intensity of the pressure or it just became their norm. And maybe we don't need to talk about those At length, we can talk about a few, but I mostly don't want to because I feel like often the stories I read were sort of written with that, can you believe they did this? And then also like, oh, and they did get sober after years of addiction and now they're not. But can you believe how crazy that is? And I don't really want to make light of a a very distressing situation, but I think there are a couple that maybe can be discussed in slightly lighter ways. Uh, Well, I was initially going to make a... uh, uh maybe off-color joke about my United's whole defense on Sunday. <laughs> uh, 
Being, well, that's fair. That's drunk. just fair. That's but just you, fair. You and to... would make me feel better, I think. <laughs> I, I think that would make me feel better. Okay, you've t- yeah. You've, you've taken it in a slightly different direction, which is the, the, that was a direction I was going to go in and, and, and with time. But uh, yeah, you're, 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 <laughs> no, you're absolutely better. I'm sorry. <laughs> no problem. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. A number of the, the cases that I... Um, I did quite a bit of research on this because there are there aren't actually many players who have you know the the few cases are players who have retired and then said yes that happened once or or, or twice or whatever and it does tend to be cases you know the the I actually don't think they have admitted to being drunk or high during during a match but certainly kind of Paul Merson Paul Gascoigne. Um, and by the sounds of it, a lot of professional footballers in the eighties and nineties, you know, yeah. were not in the best condition to play a game the night, uh, sorry, the the day after mm-hmm. a night before. If you get what I, get what I mean, <laughs> I do. Um, Did you see the, the real the, Ferdinand one? Yeah, that was. I was literally That's just going to say have, that. The yeah. Only, <laughs> yeah, the only example I could find of a player actually admitting that they they played a match drunk was Rio Ferdinand, a, a game for West Ham. At, against Arsenal but there there were also some kind of circumstance there was a circumstance with him being um, selected late or or something like that he was called up to the matchday squad late and and so didn't really know or something like that but yeah i i could find admissions f- from NFL players of playing high. I, I even found a listicle of ranking baseball players who played oh, yeah. better while drunk, uh, which was quite something. I'm not sure how to take that, but while I'm sure it happens and has had to happen in soccer, there isn't as much in the, in the public domain about it. And when it is cases, um, the few cases that are mentioned, as you referenced, Taylor, tend to be a symptom of a bigger problem in someone's life. I read that article too. I forget who the pitcher was who I guess threw it. I can't remember if it was a no hitter or a perfect game, but he threw that game while uh, on LSD. And I think his quote afterwards was that he thought he was pitching to Richard Nixon at one point. So <laughs> I guess it can work in certain sports. I don't know how well that would go over in uh, professional football at any level. No, no. And, <laughs> and it also makes me wonder, like, is that a thing in baseball? Like, I mean, you, you know, gotta kill the boredom, I guess. You gotta find a way through. Sure. Yeah. I've been to a baseball match, game, whatever you call that. Uh, experience, I guess. Uh, uh lifetime, yeah. whatever you want to go with. Uh, the other, the other one that I think there are many stories about, I can't remember if he ever owned up to it, even though I think he was kicked out of a World Cup for testing positive, would be Diego Maradona, who, uh, amongst many stories, there's one of him playing in an all-star game where he appears to sniff cocaine after scoring a goal. Like somebody walks up to him with like powder and he leans down and sniffs it. And maybe wow. that was like like crushed up aspirin. But I feel like more likely it was it was the other thing. And I think there are probably stories of amphetamines uh, being utilized in various uh, like sports sports arenas i think uh the uh, an argentina national team in a world cup was famously said to have used those as a way to kind of keep their endurance up such that they had to run for several hours after a game and i think bill bill burr had the joke about like performance enhancing drugs and all of the the baseball players in the 70s and 80s being high on cocaine and how that would help you see every single stitch of the ball so i do think maybe that would be a bit of a performance enhancer and is probably why it is banned and is probably also why players are hesitant to talk about their experiences with it. Uh, Joe, any other ones from you? Because I'm with Graham. I think most of the stories are sort of 
mournful or about how bad things were for the player when they were playing while dealing with addiction or alcoholism, aside from that Rio Ferdinand one when he was sort of drunk and didn't realize he was playing that day. Yeah, that, that was the only main example I could find. I also did just rewatch the video of Diego Maradona being handed a bag yep. of cocaine on the sideline while coaching in Argentina in 2020. Oh, yeah. And That's then that. all the assistant coaches moved to block the camera. And it is, it's, imp- it's some impressive coordination from that coaching staff. But no, I don't yeah. have much else to add on Matt's question. Yeah, not a not a ton of subtlety from Diego Maradona no, when it came no. to his uh, drug use, uh, and I and I I do wonder. I mean, I think we get drug testing a lot. There's there's tests after every single game. I do believe. Uh, I think there's probably more going on behind the scenes than we will ever hear about uh, because you know it's a bunch of twenty somethings playing professional sports. I think. Probably there's going to be some drinking. There's probably going to be some drug use. But I think it probably isn't going to be discussed as openly as maybe in other sports because I think soccer fundamentally doesn't sort of abide those things, even if it used to. Arsene Wenger has now made it uh, so that no one will ever drink alcohol again in a public setting unless they play for Bayern Munich in Oktoberfest. That's my takeaway from this one. Uh, Final question uh, that moves away from human trafficking and alcoholism. So I appreciate that. Comes from Joey Zidlowski. what is the criteria for deciding who gets credit for a goal, including own goals? For example, in the Liverpool Atleti game from last week, James Milner, he is James in this one, got credit for the goal because it deflected off him. But uh, if it had have deflected off a defensive player, it's sometimes credited as the shooter's goal. What's the difference for this? Who is the authoritative body on this decision in each game? Joe, who is the authoritative body? Or if you want to start with it, how do we decide who scored the goal? That is an excellent question, Joey. Uh, Many people out there are also asking that question. And as far as I can tell, there are a number of different answers and a number of different bodies that are responsible for helping guide these decisions. First of all, though, I want to go back in the question a bit. Hamas Miller didn't get credit for that goal, right? Like, I'm not I'm not tripping here. It was Mo Salah's goal that deflected off of James Miller, but it still went down as Salah's goal, that one where he cuts past one, two, and then three and shoots, right? That's the goal that Joey's referencing? Is, it is. Right? I, I it actually, is. I have no idea, and maybe that should have been the first one. I looked it up. Wow. It, it was given to Mohamed Salah. <laughs> you yeah. are correct, Joe. It was just by Andy Robertson. That is crazy. I don't bring that up to criticize Joey. I bring it up as an example of how murky this stuff is, right? I reached out to a referee friend of mine, and he said, uh, that's a good question, and then proceeded to think and give me you know, his answer. He said that as far as he knows, there is no consistent overarching authoritative body. It varies by competition. So the Premier League, for example, has the goal accreditation panel. The championship has one. Champions League, interestingly enough, from what I could find, doesn't necessarily have as structured of a a setup there. There's also no mention of this whole discussion about how to assign credit for a goal in the laws of the game because it's not directly relevant to the run of play or or to the, the laws. And so it's not really something that the laws care about. So I don't believe there's a clear rule that defines under which circumstances should an own goal be awarded versus when it should be counted as a deflection and go to the original shooter or go to the teammate. There is some distinctions in here in terms of where and how a defender might strike the ball that, or, or how an opposing player, I should say, might strike the ball that then leads to an own goal being given to them if a shot's hit on target. And then it hits an opponent and goes in, it's probably still going to be counted as a shooter's goal. If if there's a deliberate intervention by a defending player that leads to a goal, it's likely to be awarded as an own goal. But I'm using a lot of likelies and maybes and mites and mays, and I think that gets to the heart of this answer. I cannot believe that that wasn't given to James Milner because my yeah, answer would I, just I be that was, if, yeah. yeah, if it's if it's like 
off target and then deflected on, be it by a teammate or an opposition player, then it's going to be given as either a goal for that player or an own goal for the opposition player. If it's on frame and deflected, then that changes things. So I guess maybe that's the answer is that the shot was on frame and then deflected. I would say Hamas Milner is taking deliberate action there. So I am. Yeah, that's, that's the thing confused. that confuses me is that Milner, it's not just a, in this specific instance. Milner, it's not a deflection in my eyes. No. He sticks his side, the side of his foot out, you know, the, his instep out to guide it into the net. So I am very surprised that that was not given as his, as his goal. Knowing that like Hamas Milner is the type to buy a ruler to measure his other ruler to make sure that it is appropriately <laughs> uh, measured, which I believe is the thing he actually did. Uh, maybe he just didn't want to take credit for it. Maybe he was just so subdued and everybody likes Mohamed Salah so much that they were just like, okay, in this case, even though it should be Hamas Milner, we're giving it to Mo Salah. And I think I'm okay with that because it means he gets the hat trick. The, the obvious question that this all begs uh, for both of you, would you rather be on the goal accreditation committee or the panel or the dubious goals committee because i think i would prefer to be on the dubious goals committee yeah dubi- yeah that sounds better without a uh, doubt yeah, way more exciting, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> perfect uh anything else to add about this one because i think basically the takeaway is there are lots of different organizations in different leagues and at international level who decide who gets the credit and how the uh the goal will be attributed but for the most part it seems to be subjective and it seems to come yeah. down to who is doing the official statistical compilation and who decides to write down the name in that moment yeah the, the only the only guidance that i could find from fifa um or actually i think it's from ifab which is um you know fifa's i don't actually know how they're linked to fifa i don't know if they're affiliated but that's who kind of decides the the global laws of the game is ifab so the kind of four pointers that fifa that is why right. they exist Okay, there we go. There's the explanation. So the, the, the four pointers that they give in terms of determining what's an own goal, um, you know, what's a deflection, what's a, a, you know, another player on the same team if it's their goal. The four pointers that they give are the incident and the flight of the ball. The defender must be deliberately involved in the incident to concede an own goal. A forward must always be assumed to be seeking to score. And the final one, a forward cannot be registered as the scorer simply by putting a defender under pressure, but without touching the ball. Um, that seemed as a bit of a word salad, but that's the only guidance that they give. And the rest of it is just up to leagues, referees, um, you know, whatever bookmaker has paid the most money to sponsor that particular <laughs> match. That's, that's a fun way to put it, Graham. Ending on the conspiratorial note, I do appreciate. Uh, anything else for any of these questions from either of you? Not for me. Nope. All right, then. I think on that succinct note, we have come to the end of today's episode. Thank you to everyone who submitted questions. I always enjoy answering them. Uh, And if you want to hear more about IFAB or why England, Scotland, uh, Northern Ireland, and Wales all play as their own individual countries, we did a Soccer 101 episode about that at some point in the past, but I cannot remember the title or the number, but it's in there. You can go find it. Uh, Joe Lowry, you are going to be with me again tomorrow to be uh, answering more questions this time about the U.S. men's national team. We're doing another scuffed crossover. Do you feel like you are prepared for the marathon that is the multi-hour recording session when it comes to the national team with scuffed? I'm prepared mentally and emotionally. I'm not actually prepared because I haven't looked at any of the questions we're going to be talking about yet, but I will be, and uh, I'm very much looking forward to it, Taylor. And and how much time are you going to dedicate to looking ahead to the Mourinho era oh, of I think uh, the USMNT? That'll be the whole first part on, on the TSS sure. feed, and then the scuff, the scuff part, we'll, we'll get into some other things. But yeah, of course, Graham, of course. 
<laughs> While we're sort of pontificating on Joe's future plans, Graham, to your point earlier about how many games he watches when it comes to Major League Soccer, I do sort uh, of picture Joe like almost like in the way that there's this like you know people study by recording themselves and then they listen to their their notes as they sleep. I do picture Joe just having MLS games on a loop while yeah. he sleeps, just to internalize everything so, that's happening. So the way that I picture it is, I uh-huh. saw a, a commercial. Uh, yesterday of uh, Tom Brady like plugging himself in I think it's a Hertz commercial like they've bought a hold of electric <laughs> yeah. cars and he like he the, the, the bit is that he he charges himself yeah. at Hertz facilities that's what Joe does but like MLS HQ so like D- Big Don hands him <laughs> the charging cable and he just like powers up for uh, like five hours uh, and just take <laughs> and absorbs it all all, it, in, all in one go now all I'm picturing is like uh, uh, the Matrix situation in which they just plug Joe in and then they unplug plug him 10 seconds later yeah. and he's like i yeah. know everything about the houston dynamo now and that's how that's how it all works joe just yep, that's downloads teams. Oh, that's right, yeah perfect. i just get unplugged like 10 minutes before we record and so it actually works out really well timing wise <laughs> graham ruffin thank you for that and so many other things uh they are always greatly appreciated no, no problem weird, weird note to finish on <laughs> I've heard, that's how you know that we've uh, reached the appropriate ending of a listener question show is when things go off the rails in the best possible way listeners I hope you have stuck with us and thank you for doing so we'll talk to you all again very soon 